0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a huge show for you again this week. Uh, believe it or not, we can't fit this number of people in the studio, but we are going to interview for a couple of minutes all of the FameLab national finalists uh, who have been competing over the last few months. We had the Victorian finalists on last week, as you may recall, and this week we're going to be talking to the national finalists. After that, we're going to be talking to uh, someone who's Working on indigenous astronomy. And then the team will be uh, virtually in the studio a bit later in the show to do some news. But first up, we have a whole range of these uh, FameLab National Finals. So for those of you who don't know, FameLab is a science communication uh, competition that uh, runs each year. And normally, these uh, great folk get to stand up in front of live audiences and give their presentations. But this year, of course, they've all been done via video conferencing and Zoom. And you can find them all online if you do a search for FameLab Australia um and some of them are just absolutely fabulous and we have a whole range of them now and the first one that i'm going to speak to is valeria seneglaglia who is from murdoch university valeria can you hear us
1: hi shane i can hear you hi to everyone thanks for having me
0: it's great to have you now i should give people listening some context because you work on dolphins but not only do you normally work on dolphins you're working on dolphins right now you're on a boat somewhere i can just see on your screen there water tell us where you are
1: I am in the Swan River. I am helping out another researcher from my lab at Murdoch University conducting survey for probably the second time since the pandemic. So we've been out of the water for quite some time and we're super excited to be back. We just had dolphin feeding and jumping everywhere uh, as you might have enjoyed a little bit.
0: Yeah look it's fantastic to see and it's a shame that this radio and people can't see what I'm seeing but tell us a little bit about your research. What are you doing?
1: Sure. So for like 15 years, I followed dolphin and whales quite around the world. And I mainly look at the impact of any type of human activity and tourism in particular on their behavior, their well-being, their welfare. Um, whale watching as feeding wild dolphin in particular is incredibly bad. It can have negative effect. And I am studying this in, um, in Bambury, so in the south of Western Australia.
0: Mm. And how do you go about that? I mean, you're out there sort of interacting with them yourselves. So how do you guarantee that what you're doing isn't problematic? And and what sort of things do you look for?
1: So there's different ways of looking at the negative effect. Usually, we I specialize in behavior, so changes in behavior. They change direction very frequently. If a boat is arresting them, or they might be conditioned in terms of the food, so they start to associate boat with food, and so they come too close to boat. As researchers trying to avoid any type of impact, well, first of all, we never feed them. It's absolutely legal. And plus, we develop skills through the years. We know how far we can stay and how to drive the boat from an angle, from behind them at a 45 degrees angle, never crossing their path. There are several techniques that you can adopt to uh, to avoid um, being impactful i would say and we also use the statistic to look at dolphin from land as well even without research boat and see if the research boat also is impacting so it's a factor that we account for
0: Mm. well valeria it's great talking to you thanks so much we're out of time for your two minutes but i should say i've never had to share someone's time with them driving a boat before it sounds dangerous (laughs) to be doing that but go back to carefully driving your boat and studying those dolphins and thanks so much for being on triple r
1: no worries. Multitasking woman. Have a great day, everyone. You too. Bye, bye. Thanks so
0: much, Valeria. Okay, next up is Sarah Bell. We spoke to Sarah briefly last week as well. Sarah made it through to the national final uh, for Monash University. Good morning, Sarah.
2: Good morning, Shane. How are you going?
0: Good. Now, we talked about your work on mosquitoes and uh, and the use of, I think it was a bacteria last week, wasn't it, in the mosquitoes yep. to prevent the spread of, remind me which disease it was?
2: It was dengue fever. So if right. mosquitoes have this bacteria, if they carry it, they won't pass the dengue fever onto
0: humans when they bite you. Mm. And you do the maths, the modelling around this? What, what does that involve? That's correct. Yeah, what does that involve?
2: That involves, for me, it involves making a very big computer program called a model. And what this computer program does is it replicates a real-life mosquito experiment or a mosquito release experiment. So this program tracks the life behaviour of thousands of mosquitoes, each individual one. We're sort of following each mosquito from egg to adulthood and seeing what they do, their mating behaviour, that kind of thing. And we do this so we can bring in some statistical methods to give us an idea about how mosquitoes behave and how they spread um, across a Mm neighbourhood, because that tells us how this bacteria spreads.
0: Are are they similar to other insects? Like are they model insects that have already been studied or is this sort of of out-of-the-box new stuff?
2: So interesting with this model, not only do we have to account for behaviour that's different from other insects, we have to account for behaviour that's different from other species of mosquitoes. Mm. There's a lot of aspects in this computer program that have been created because these mosquitoes behave differently from other types of mosquitoes. Um, Different species of mosquitoes actually behave very differently. They're very diverse and um, even just minor things like how they mate and how they lay their eggs.
0: Yeah, interesting. Look, it's fascinating stuff, and they're obviously a big problem around the world. So thanks for chatting to us again, Sarah. Good luck with your ongoing work.
2: Thank you very much. Have a lovely day.
0: You too. Uh, we also have Lynn Nazareth on the phone from the Menzies Health Institute and in Griffith University. Lynn, good morning.
3: Good morning,
0: Shane. Now, you're working on ways to protect the brain. I've been drinking so much booze lately in this lockdown. I'm not <laughs> even sure I should listen to this, but do tell. What are you doing exactly?
3: So, um... The thing about bacteria and viruses is that they're quite sneaky, as we all know, a virus has uh, um And so even though your brain is quite well protected, uh, bacteria and viruses use the nerves in your nose and um, bypass all these protective barriers and mm. cause brain infection. Okay. But what is worse is that these infections can progress into diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And I look at how the cells in your nose could protect your brain.
0: Okay. And, I mean, can we somehow – we don't want to switch those cells off, but is there Mm -hmm. something that we can do to create a better barrier there in the nose to prevent that, or is it something that we treat otherwise with our immune system?
3: Um, So, in a way – while what I've found is the cells in your nose are quite good at killing invading bacteria and viruses, but we can look at ways and making it even better. So, uh, in a way, to make sure these cells are always ready for, you know, invading uh, pathogens. Mm.
0: And and how do you go about that? Like in the lab, what what exactly are you testing?
3: So uh, right now, I'm looking at what structures do these cells have? How do they recognize, eat, and degrade? invading pathogens and we could perhaps design small molecules or structures to stimulate them you know so that they're always active and prepared for anything that comes its way
0: sounds like a good plan to me active and prepared if only we'd been that way when we were uh, starting this pandemic eh? thanks so much uh lynn <laughs> good to chat to you Thank and you, congratulations on getting through to the national final as well uh, so next up is samuel hinton samuel university of queensland can you hear me I can, mate. How's it going? Good. Um, Now, tell us, you're working on whether or not you can hear the Big Bang. This sounds like a a reach.
4: Yeah, it's a bit interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure you've heard that in space, no one can hear you scream. And it's true for space right now, but it's not true for space just after the Big Bang, and that's what we care about. So we're trying to detect the acoustic remnants of the Big Bang because that tells us valuable information about the early life of the universe. And from that We're trying to work out the properties of dark energy and dark matter, which are still mysterious, elusive, and we have no idea but we're making small steps. So check back in another 100 years and I'm sure you'll have the answer. <laughs> so when we talk about
0: acoustic noise, so we're talking about the vibration of materials passed from one, one part of a material to another. What, what does that look like in terms of those early stages of the universe? I mean, if we looked at it now, of course, there's not enough molecules to, you know, or, or atoms or anything um, in space to pass those things on. What, what did that look like back, back then?
4: Yeah, so you're entirely right. Space right now... There's no way to transfer vibrations, but because the universe is expanding, that means if you go back in time, it's much smaller. And eventually, if you make the universe small enough, it still has the same amount of stuff in it, but it stops looking like space and it starts looking like the sun, right a fiery mm. ball of plasma. And so that's a fluid, very thick, energetic, dense fluid. And essentially quantum mechanics is saying that just, there's just a little bit more stuff in some locations than the other. The universe isn't perfectly smooth. But imagine that's like blowing up a balloon in, uh, you know, in Earth's atmosphere. You then pop the balloon and that over density of air, you hear the pop and the air shoots out and spreads out. And that's very similar to what the early universe is like. Instead of one balloon, though, there are, you know, trillions upon trillions Mm. of them. And all of their pops are overlapping, all the ripples spreading out, overlapping. And that's what we want to try and observe. But, of course, we can't hear it. We have to go and use telescopes to determine where those acoustic peaks were.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, what sort of telescope are you looking through? What what, uh, optical range are you looking in?
4: So most of my work is using the Dark Energy Survey and the Dark Energy Survey's camera, DECAM, which is mounted on the 4-meter Blanco telescope in Chile. So we do a whole bunch of things with that, mostly it's just photographs of the night sky. We take a whole mm-hmm. bunch of different colors and then we follow it up with spectroscopy, which is essentially saying, hey, look, we found this cool galaxy right here. Now, instead of just taking a picture of it, let's get its entire spectral sequence, which, t- which tells us you know, how much of any particular atom or molecule is in that galaxy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, very cool stuff. Samuel, thanks so much, uh, and we'll check back with you in 100 years. Sounds great. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, Next up is Anu Rajendran. We spoke to Anu last week from Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome back, Anu. How are you going?
5: Thank you for having me back, Shane. How are you?
0: Good. It's great to talk to you again. Now, I thought we would extend our conversation from last week a bit because you're working on Mm -hmm. the the sorts of requirements that astronauts will have when they go to other locations. Can you give us a bit of a feel for what the environment's like on Mars? I mean, what, you know, if I was to walk outside, what would I be experiencing?
5: Absolutely. So. Ideally, you'd have your space suit on so you're nice and protected and you've got all the life support that you require because if you didn't, you were probably going to be not alive for very long. Mm. And as Michael just said, no one can hear you scream in space. (laughs) But, of course, because you're so far away as well. Additionally, you know, it's really cold on Mars. It's much colder and uh, we should have chosen, by that point in time, a decent enough um, location to land. And when we do get to Mars, I suppose... It's very high risk because we need to get there, and then we need to set up habitation, um, food, all that sort of stuff needs to, you know, be thought out as well.
1: Mm.
0: How so- much? How much of? Uh, how much can I learn from the film *The Martian* and the book?
5: I would say it's, it's quite accurate, except for the potatoes. I'm not, oh. I'm not a big fan of potatoes. I do think that the soil toxicity might actually poison our
6: Martian.
0: Uh, the potatoes was <laughs> the best a, part.
6: Like really <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how would we, uh, would we have to take all the food with us or is there the plan to sort of maybe be able to habitate some stuff in closed environments? Would we have to take our own soil?
5: Yes. So currently aboard the ISS, they are able to grow um, cucumbers and things like that. Um, I think they even baked cookies a little while ago. Lots of different experiments happening right now aboard the ISS as an analog. Uh, When we do get to Mars, we'd be taking food with us. We'd be growing some of it, hopefully. Maybe we'll even grow some on the way.
0: That look, it sounds – I mean, it's an incredibly difficult challenge to be able to do this. And at Swinburne, are there a lot of people working at Swinburne in this space of of, of trying to work out some of the technologies that are involved in space travel?
5: That's right. So at Swinburne, I was part of a team that was working on sensors Mm -hmm. and working on holistic sensors, which connect up with one another. I am moving my research to Deakin, where the technology is going to become autonomous now. So incorporating quite a bit of machine learning. So it's, take, it's going from diagnosis to prognosis. So being able to predict those things based on diagnosis and collecting data. And now we're going to try and predict events before they happen and try and mitigate emergencies
0: well good luck with your new posting down there at deacon i hope you enjoy it it's a great university as is Swinburne, and uh thank hopefully you. I, I mean you're working in an incredibly exciting space as listeners to the show know, i'm obsessed with space so we'll have to chat to you again at some stage in the future thanks anu good to chat to you thank
5: you so much
0: next up is nisha dugan from the university of sydney nisha are you there can you hear us
6: Hi, Shane. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to chat to you. Now, uh, you're working on a surprising treatment for stroke, and can I just put out there first, people who've listened to the show for a long time know I'm arachnophobic. Don't talk too much about spiders.
6: <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a I'm a chemist. I work in the lab, and the overall goal of my PhD research is to make new drugs to treat stroke. Um, but specifically, what I'm working on at the moment in the project that I spoke about in Fame Lab involves trying to recreate a component of funnel web spider venom in the lab which may not really seem like it's related to stroke but really interestingly we have collaborators in Queensland who found out that, that this particular part of uh, this fun web spider venom can help to prevent the uh, brain damage that occurs
0: after a stroke
6: so uh, which is a really interesting result so I'm trying to now make that component in the lab
0: now we're not talking about uh spiders biting people after they've been stroked i mean you some some poor bug has got to milk these things right are you doing that
6: <laughs> no so yeah as you can imagine uh i don't really want to be chasing any fun web spiders around or trying to get the venom out of them that's <laughs> actually what um these uh research in the queens do at the moment is they they do make the spider like release venom and then they uh, extract it and and look at all the different components but if you can imagine like a spider's only producing a little really tiny amount of venom so if we're really going to use it in a in a useful way we need to be able to produce really large quantities so that's why uh, they sort of asked the chemist to then see if they can make this on a larger scale in the lab. So I don't have to actually have to milk the spiders, thank goodness.
0: <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. Now, we, we know um, like there are a lot of uh, venoms that are used in this way for various treatments around the world, aren't there? Are there other venoms that are currently being used for stroke treatment or is this a sort of first?
6: So there's, there's no other venoms that are being currently used for stroke. There is, um, I think it's a Brazilian spider that produces a toxin. Has a similar effect to the toxin from this funnel web spider, but actually uh, the, the the one from the funnel web spider is a lot more potent and uh, hopefully will will have better properties than this other one. Yeah. But other venoms are used for other diseases um, around the world, and it's really really interesting what some of these venoms do.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be great though. Like at some stage, you are going to have to go to a conference, and you can show some funnel web spider footage that you know people especially in america they are scared to death of the absolute (laughs) nasty animals that we have in this country animals insects the whole lot snakes everything i mean they they just you know we've got it all and the idea that you'll be able to have that in your presentations i envy you greatly for that i think that's um that's fantastic so yeah
6: thank you very much
0: (laughs) good luck with the ongoing work thanks for chatting to us on triple r thanks so
6: much see you later
0: see ya. Uh, next up is Emily Brogan from the Edith Cohen University in Western Australia. Emily, can you hear us?
7: Yes. Hi, Shane. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks for getting online. I know you're at work at the moment, aren't you?
7: I am. I'm, uh, I wish I was on a boat in Perth like Valeria, <laughs> but I'm actually, yes, in a hospital.
0: <laughs> what do you do in the hospital?
7: I'm a speech pathologist by training, so I still um, do some clinical work, uh, but moved into research for my PhD. One
0: of the things that's interesting here is every single time I've had a speech pathologist in the room, in the studio, every single person I have in the studio other than that person's speech goes downhill for some reason. We all get a bit nervous. What's that about? Is that a normal effect? Does that happen?
7: Yes, that is a normal effect. Everyone becomes very (laughs) self-conscious. Mm. But no need to be.
0: No need to be. Now, tell us about your work because you're working on the um, problem of aphasia. First of all, just remind people what aphasia is.
7: Aphasia is a communication disability that's most common after a stroke. So it's about 30% of stroke survivors will have difficulty reading, writing, speaking or understanding language. Um, and lots of people will know someone who has that difficulty, but they're just not quite aware of the term, which is aphasia.
0: Mm. And is this something just comes on or you develop? Like what's the cause, or do we not know?
7: When it's after a stroke, it's to do with the damage that's been caused in that area of the brain from the stroke where your language centre is, so it will come on suddenly, and then it's a, a long process of rehabilitation after that through speech therapy to improve
0: the condition. Okay. And, and is it one of those conditions where, because I know, I, su- I suppose speech therapy is one of those areas that over the last 20, 30 years we've gone from conditions that seem to be you know, impossible to improve upon to one where they're almost eliminated completely. I, I, you don't hear people stuttering very often these days. In, in adulthood, many of these conditions are completely resolved by speech ther- therapy. It's one of the great sort of wins of the last 20 years. Is aphasia one of those?
7: Unfortunately, with aphasia, um, it is often a chronic and lifetime condition. And um, there is a certain percentage of people who, after a stroke, will recover, have a good recovery, um, But for many of them, it will be a lifelong battle. And my research looks at what sort of dose of speech therapy will give the best recovery in that early time after a stroke, because at the moment we don't know, um, like a doctor would come in and prescribe a dose of a drug because it's a behavioural therapy intervention. We're not quite sure how much someone needs to get that best recovery. So um yeah can be a lifelong battle for many many people
0: mm. well it's a great area to be in congratulations on the ongoing work and i hope uh hope you have a good day there at, at, at the hospital and it's not too um i'm sure it's difficult working in any hospital environment at the moment but hopefully it's um hopefully it's calm there
7: thank you very much
0: thanks for chatting emily okay next up is daria uh, craig from the university of western australia good morning good morning Great to talk to you. You're not in the hospital. I can see little figurines in your backdrop, which is great. Love to see. I love watching everyone's different Zoom backdrops. they're, they're very informative. Now, tell us a bit it's about. A... So, go ahead.
8: Uh, It's an office I share with my husband, so I must say, the figurines are all his.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A likely story. Um, Now, you're working in something, the title of your presentation was No More Bad Leaders. Um, You can almost throw a dart around the world at the moment and find a bad leader quite readily. Tell us specifically what you're doing, though, because that's a really interesting title.
1: Yeah, so
8: one of the things that really uh, interests me is uh, you often observe this and people seem to know uh, when we talk about leadership, people seem to know what good leadership looks like and everyone will have examples of you know good leaders and what they should be doing. And yet, like you said, when you look around, and it's not only during this pandemic time that we see this, it's you know sort of under normal circumstances as well. You look around and you see uh, everyone has an example of a bad boss or a bad boss behavior, and I really and I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. And I really want to see what's going on there. Why why we seem to know what le- you know good leadership is, and why we still have so many uh, behaviors around us that signal bad.
0: Bad leadership yeah I, I mean is there there's some crossover also between people progressing because often you find people progress quite high but at the same time they're often regarded as appalling leaders of people is is there some sort of correlate there between some of the personality aspects that you're seeing because to me it seems as though you know it's not quite the nicholas cage correlation that's a little better than that but there's something there's something going on right
8: yeah, no, it's actually quite interesting that you picked up on this because that's that's definitely um, something that I'm really curious about is why isn't that, you know, the higher position up we are, the, the more people will complain about our leadership. And I think that, you know, it's it's, it's certainly uh, it certainly maybe has to do with the individual who is occupying those positions. It might do uh, maybe with all the, you know, pressures and complexities that they have to deal with. Like we don't realise how many, like, competing politics and and stakeholders they have to deal with at those higher levels, especially, but I also think, uh, has to do with, you know, our sort of biased perceptions. So, Mm. um, when the power, power comes into play, right? So people in high leadership positions are you know, associated with higher power status. And I think there's probably, you know, some, um, some that's, you know, that's comes into play. So we, we think that, um, um, we, we essentially bias against uh, against those higher powered individuals in some ways. Yeah. So, um, so that's uh, that's something that I'm definitely uh, curious to find more about, and I'm thinking of actually conducting experiments in terms of manipulating the power conditions and and seeing what what effect that has on uh, on the
0: perceptions. Yep, sounds great. Look, I've got a few people I can suggest you conducting experiments on, depending on how painful they are, um, <laughs> which would give you a lot of information, I think, on their leadership. But look, it, it, Daria, it's really interesting work. Um, if you can crack Thank it, you. I think you'll be very popular because it's something that a lot of people don't understand well. So good luck. And I have thanks. to be I have
8: to be very careful with that work. You know, there's oh, yeah. other implications with doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, <laughs> but thanks.
0: Think, absolutely. Thanks for chatting to us <laughs> on triple i have a great day
8: thank you thanks, thanks so much
0: and last but not least is cody freer from the university of queensland cody uh first of all congratulations you won the FameLab
9: competition uh for all of australia
0: well done thanks
9: so much shane yeah it was a big surprise to everyone me most of all
0: you know the best part about that my understanding is you now get to go on an international trip is that right or is that normally um, what happens Oh, well, I'm supposed
9: to. You know, I'm supposed to go to the UK in October, which would be great, but it's looking less and less likely by the
0: day. Yeah. Well, look, maybe you know, I think all of these things are being managed in a fair way, and and I'm sure uh, you know, no one will be able to go to the UK for this competition in October. I suspect, so they'll probably postpone it. And you'll get to do it anyway, which would be cool. But now let's yeah, let's crossed. talk about your work because you're a pediatrician. Is that right?
9: Uh, uh, No. uh, So I'm a medical student doing a PhD. So the MD program wasn't long enough for me. I had to tack on a PhD.
0: (laughs) Another another three or four years. And what exactly are you looking at there with um, regards to your PhD?
9: So I'm studying pediatric burns. Uh, So anyone who's spent a lot of time with children uh, knows that uh, accidents... Can happen. You know, children can knock over cups of tea and coffee, touch hot plates, come Mm. into contact with oven doors. And sometimes those accidents can lead to burn injuries that require medical attention. One of the biggest long-term consequences of uh, pediatric burns is permanent scarring, which Mm. affects up to 35% of children who sustain burns and can detrimentally influence their. Physical, psychological, and social development. So, my PhD focuses on identifying ways to improve the healing process and thereby redu- reduce the risk of scarring.
0: Mm. And and how do you go about that? I mean, are you you interacting with a lot of kids there at one of the hospitals, or you know, what, what's, what's yeah, the process?
9: Absolutely. So, I'm uh, focusing specifically on a treatment called negative pressure wound therapy, uh, which at its most basic level just involves applying a vacuum to the wound environment. And there's been some limited evidence that it might help Uh, patients with burns, it might accelerate the healing process, but uh, you can't really determine that definitively unless you perform a clinical trial. So that's what we did at the Queensland Children's Hospital. We recruited over 100 children and randomized them to either uh, standard antimicrobial dressings, uh, which is the standard of care, uh, or a combination of those same dressings and negative pressure, the intervention that I'm testing. And uh, we tracked them all throughout the recovery, and at the end of the day, we found that negative pressure did, in fact, accelerate the healing process, decrease the number of dressing changes that these children had to undergo, and uh, significantly reduce the risk of requiring that long-term scar
0: management. Do we have a feel for why that change in pressure is having that beneficial effect? It's sort of, it almost feels a bit counterintuitive in a way that, you know, is is the absence of oxygen around the burn environment something that's
9: helpful? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the biggest challenges in burn management is that these injuries are highly dynamic. Uh, so you can have a child come into the emergency department with a burn uh, a few hours after the incident and it looks relatively superficial and small, uh, you apply the regular dressings and when they come back a few days later and you remove those dressings, you find that the wound has deteriorated. It's significantly deeper, it's bigger, and may even require a skin graft and it is at high risk of scar formation. Um, and so negative pressure is believed to work uh, by removing some of those clotting and immune factors that contribute to that wound progression or deterioration, mm. and also by having other effects on the wound environment. For example, improving blood flow. Uh, so you talked about oxygen, and actually it improves uh, the supply of oxygen to the wound by reducing the compression on uh, those blood vessels that are supplying that wound. And by reducing the compression, it improves the flow of blood, so improves the flow of nutrients and oxygen that those cells need uh, in order to uh, heal the wound.
0: Fantastic. I love it when something seems counterintuitive, but once we hear the details, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, of course, that lets the oxygen get to where it needs to go. That's great. Cody, uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but thanks so much for chatting to us on Triple R. Congratulations again on winning the the FameLab competition nationally. Uh, I hope you do get on that plane to represent us in the UK, and more importantly, though, good luck with the work of the kids. Hopefully, uh, those outcomes are positive.
9: Great. Thanks so much, Shane, and happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there.
0: Ah, oh, you just beat me to it. <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, good job, mate. Talk soon. Thanks so much, folks. Uh, that was the group of FameLab uh, finalists from Australia. We had them from all over the, all over the country. They're one of the, the glorious uh, things that we can do with these Zoom calls. Not quite as much fun for me as having them in the studio, but nevertheless, uh, good to be able to talk to them all at the same time. We're going to take a break now for some music, and when we'll be uh, coming back in just a moment with our next guest for today.
10: Triple
0: R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein A Go Go on 3 Triple R. On the line now, we have Crystal Denapoli. She is a student down at Monash University studying astrophysics. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> now It's great to chat to you because you uh, not only are a student down there, but you're part of um, our Indigenous community from the Galmilaroi. Did I get that right?
11: Galmilaroi,
0: yeah. Yep. And one of your – I heard about you from our program manager here at the station because you were on, on uh, another show some months ago. But one of the things you're doing is trying to educate the Australian community and I guess the broader community on what Indigenous astronomy is about. So, why don't we, before we talk about some of the, the other great things you're doing at Monash and so forth, let's just talk about what we mean by Indigenous astronomy. Can you give us a bit of a rundown?
11: Yep. Um, so, uh, largely, it's just one of the key fields of Indigenous science. Um, and so, this is a an area of science that extends back from what we can tell tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, it is recorded quite differently from what we're used to in Western science. And so usually when I talk to the public about these topics, I do have to give that foundational step of what Indigenous science is and how it's actually um, encoded and transmitted in an oral culture. Mm. Because, you know, we're lacking books to write down and keep sort of track of things. And so for some people, that's a bit hard to wrap their head around. And so Indigenous science, um, it tends to be encoded into stories, So these are stories that people would probably be familiar with in terms of hearing dreaming stories, um, Rainbow Serpent and things we might have heard in primary school or if we go to some sort of, you know, cultural exhibition. Um, And these usually seem like fantastical stories with great creatures in them. But usually what they're actually doing is using, uh, I guess, like interesting characters, interesting narratives to encode science into. And so... Indigenous science, Indigenous astronomy, it tends to have a story associated to explain what is actually physically happening. And a great example of this is if um, I want to talk about, and I love using this example because it's just simple objects, um, but if I want to talk about the sun and the moon and I want to talk about maybe the way that they interact in some way, like some physical feature of these two objects, and I want to put it into a format that I could explain to someone else who didn't see it and have them be able to explain it to others and not just other people of the same sort of age, but, you know, to children and maybe to people who aren't so familiar. And so I would talk about the sun and the moon, and I would say maybe it's the sun woman and that it's the moon man, and I would describe whatever physical interaction those objects have as some sort of narrative between those two people. And so quite frequently when I talk about Indigenous astronomy, telling that story associated is so important. Mm. Um, And it's that way of conveying. So it's, it's little memory tactics that we can use to simplify a concept and to pass it along. For generations.
0: And, and when you look back through some of these stories, how, how far back can you track in terms of significant astronomical events? You know, we, I mean, you look at certain um, pieces of artwork from Europe and you'll find examples, for example, you know, of, of comets and so forth that, you know, happened a thousand years ago. Are, are, there, are there similar sort of um, comparators in the oral stories where, for example, there might have been a, a, you know, I don't know, maybe a thousand years ago there was a big astronomical event that somehow wove its way into one of these stories?
11: Yeah, so there are many different ways that we can use um, these sort of methods to date back stories. Um, For example, obviously artwork is fantastic to be able to have things depicted in some sort of art form. We have um, stone arrangements, which are actually quite common, that relate to astronomy, whether this be tracking, um, you know, solar movements or even cardinal points, things like this. Um, But then also in the stories themselves, those descriptors. So um, frequently for things like meteorite impacts, we have stories that talk about when fire fell from the sky. Um, We have descriptions of other geological or astronomical events in the same story that can help us date back that same idea. And so I know there are pretty incredible stories which talk about positions of certain stars. So, for example, having a great southern star which, as astronomers, we know we don't really have one. Mm, yeah. We have great northern stars, like Polaris being sort of on that um, north like celestial pole, mm-hmm. where we can see it does either little circles or it doesn't really move in the night sky. But in the southern hemisphere, we don't really have something like this. However, because of this thing called precession with our axis, at a certain point we actually did have stars that were pretty close to being a southern star. And so we can use descriptions of things like great southern stars as well as Tasmania being connected by ice mass for us to get an idea in these stories of how long ago this could have happened and when these particular events could cross over. Yeah, and so there's even like volcanic eruption descriptions and um, meteorite impacts is fascinating to hear about. You know, fire falling from the skies in certain areas of re- uh, well, rural, remote Australia, and then to go to these areas and actually see great craters and be able to date them back to. So. There are a number of different techniques we can use depending on what the story is in particular.
0: Yeah, I like the fact that the Indigenous stories tell you something about what happened, but at the same time, if you then know what it is, you can sort of date the origin point of those stories as well. And correct me if I, I'm trying to remember these numbers, they're in my head somewhere, but the precession of the earth is around 11,000 years, I think, is that right? It's
11: around 13,000. So the full, full cycle is 26,000 26, years, yeah. and then for it to be halfway through that cycle is about 13,000.
0: Yeah, so that gives you straight away a time metric. Um, as you say, I mean, if you look up now, I think it's something like the Octens or some crappy little series of stars that no one cares about, really hard to find. Um, but at yeah. some point, you know, there were stars right there at the South Celestial Pole and, and knowing if, if, you know, you know that the story originated at that point, then you know exactly in time when it started, Which must be, I mean, that must be fascinating for historians looking into Indigenous culture.
11: Definitely. Um, we also have a cool crossover between different uh, groups around the world with similarities. So um, we have what seems to be descriptions of a supernova event occurring up in like the northern Tem- Tem- uh, northern territory, so your, your new country. They have a story seemingly describing a solar uh, sorry a supernova, um, which also corresponds or overlaps with ancient Chinese astronomers' descriptions of a supernova occurring near the same constellation, like in that same position. Yeah. And so for that, with being a re- written record as well, we can date back using those methods. And also that indicates scales of 2,000 years. So, mm.
0: Fantastic stuff. Now, uh, we're going to have to get you on again at some stage. So uh, we're, we're going <laughs> to run, run out of time here because we're almost out of time. But I just wanted you to quickly mention, um, you're constructing a, a database on Indigenous science knowledge for the Australian Council of Deans of Science. Um, how's that going? That sounds like a pretty big project.
11: It is so. It's like a nine-month sort of project I've been working on, and it's essentially trying to um, collate all great resources for teachers, educators, on scientific content, also scientific um, like uh, lesson plans, all to do with sorry indigenous science. Um, And so we're hoping that this can be the place where people who teachers who have been interested in indigenous science but haven't had the means to Mm. be able to properly teach people themselves. Um, We want to have this essentially trustworthy place to go where you know every resource there is valid, um, has everything you need essentially and also hopefully connections to experts. And so this would be available for the general public but specifically created for faculties of science right across Australia to have access
0: to. Yeah, it seems to me as though there's a, there's a baseline requirement there in schools where you almost need to, as you did at the start of this conversation, teach students, okay, today in our science class, we're not going to use our lab books. We're going to come up with some oral stories to record the, the experiments that we've done to give them the idea that they can do something differently and that yeah. that can work. And I think if, if you're so used to one model of the world, when their teacher comes in and starts teaching them about Indigenous astronomy... They'll turn around and say, "Well, hang, hang on, what, that that doesn't that doesn't really work in my mindset." Yeah. Whereas if we if we actually train them in other ways of communicating and recording information, we're such oral creatures, which we're all finding out at the moment in lockdown. Yeah. Um, you, you know that that would give you, I suspect, a much better way to, you know, get this information out to students in a way that was meaningful. I mean, is that is that how you see it, or is am I off, Def- off beat there?
11: No, absolutely, definitely. Um, because I feel like if you don't give that solid foundation about how it, the you know the human brain's capacity to memorize and understand oh, yeah. so many different bits of information um, is is a concept that people aren't super comfortable with because we've not had to really rely on that in such a long time. We have our phones, we have our books, all of that sort of stuff. And so if I weren't wasn't to give that introduction, people would usually question how can we trust this data. And so it's sort of needing to step back from that Western lens that's a bit biased towards how we look at science um, and you know acknowledge that indigenous knowledge systems are equally as valid and just a different way of going about these things
0: yeah well crystal it's been a delight talking to you we'll get you uh back on the show when we we can actually get you in the studio which i think will be even more fun um (laughs) thanks so much for for the for the information you've given us it's it's really um it's quite enlightening and and great to hear and good luck with your ongoing work there i think uh, hopefully it will have a very positive impact on a lot of people teaching this stuff across australia
11: Thanks, Shane. Thanks
0: for having me. Thanks so much, folks. Uh, we're going to take a break for another bit of music, and we'll be back in just a minute with the rest of the team to do some news. Triple R. Uh, good morning, folks. Uh, we are back. If you've just woken up, it's Mother's Day. Big hello to all the mothers out there, and a big hello to the rest of my team. We've got Dr. Jen, Chris, KP and you on the line. Good morning, people. Howdy. You good morning,
12: age. Dr. Shane. We're missing you.
0: Good to see you. I love the fact you've all got fake backgrounds, which means you're all in your bedrooms.
13: Mine's <laughs> not fake. <laughs> <Yours isn't->
12: <laughs>
0: <laughs> For those of you listening, folks, he has Yoda in his background. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Now, we've, uh, we've got 12 minutes left on the show, so we should get into some news. Ewan, do you want to start us off?
13: Yep, I thought I'd start off with something cheery, uh, given the state of the world. So otters, uh, who doesn't love otters, right?
0: Uh, These are the guys who lay on their back in the water?
13: They do. They lay on their back and frolic and swim around and uh, just do generally acrobatic things, which are very impressive. And so one of the things they do quite regularly is play with rocks and stones. Uh, They juggle them, essentially. And so biologists have been really puzzled as to why they juggle stones so much, and they wanted to work it out. So they looked at a whole range of uh, otters, two different species: the uh, um, smooth-coated otter and the African, uh, sorry, Asian small coated uh, otter. And they observed their behaviour uh, when they're moving these stones around. And they also controlled for age as well as sex. Uh, and not much really explains the uh, basically the stone playing other than when they're hungry. It appears, and mm. so. When they're close to being hungry, they appear to do this behaviour more often, and so they thought, well, maybe it's associated with feeding. Now, they're two different otters. One feeds on fish and one feeds on more like crabs and shellfish. So you'd expect the one that sort of feeds on shellfish and so much would be better at playing with rocks if it was something to do with foraging and learning how to forage. But the two species showed no difference at all. And they even did an experiment where they put pieces of food inside a tennis ball um, inside a medicine container and between two bricks, to see whether the otters that played more with the stones were better at solving puzzles, uh, and they weren't. Uh, now they did. They did mention some <laughs> slight problems with their experiment. Um, one of the one of the treatments only had a few individuals in it, but probably more. Um, more importantly, and somewhat amusingly, some of their otters had arthritis. Uh, which makes it a bit difficult to juggle when you have arthritis. And I was sympathised with people who have arthritis, some of my family members do. So, um, yeah, so look, some problems with experiment perhaps. But, so essentially we know now that otters do play with stones a lot more when they're hungry, but we still don't know why. Um, and the, the younger ones and the older ones did it more than, uh, I guess, middle-aged otters as well. And they're unsure about that, but they said that maybe it's to do with um, sort of, I guess, uh, learning skills and cognitive development of the young ones. And they hypothesised that the older ones might do it to basically keep them, um, you know, uh, up to speed, so to speak, compared to the adult ones. And maybe the adult ones were too busy playing with or taking care of their young otters. So, look... Hmm. Um, a bit of fun, really, in this uh, gloomy world, really. But I thought it was pretty interesting observational behavioral study. So. Yeah,
0: no, it's it's great to hear uh, this weird and wacky stuff that some animals <laughs> do, and trying to work out why they do it. But others oh, are yeah. awesome creatures. I remember first yeah. seeing them. I think in Seattle, in, and uh, I was like, holy crap! These these guys are just laying on their backs, chilling out. The only thing missing mm-hmm. is a beer. Um, yeah, it's just
13: highly yeah. intelligent as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah incredible. Yeah. Uh, thanks, yeah. Ewan. Thank you, Dr.
0: No Chen.
12: Well, guys, I thought today would be a very good day to acknowledge all women, mothers or not, and so I want to talk about the traditional views that we tend to have of women in hunter-gatherer societies. So, you know, we think of the men as out there hunting and fishing and fighting, you know, the tribal feuds, there's all these conflicts, and you guys are out there beating each other up, you know, and our traditional view of women is that they were concentrating on gathering and preparing plants and weaving and looking after children, you know, this beautiful gender divide. But I want to tell you about two studies that just came out this week that completely turned that view on its head and have really quite strong evidence of women being warriors out there fighting. So the first study came out of looking at hunter-gatherer communities in Central California, starting about 5,000 years ago and then moving to more recent um, Native American groups in the region. And they looked at a whole lot of skeletons of of hunter-gatherer peoples and they found 128 skeletons from these hunter-gatherer women that had clear damage from arrows and knives, absolutely comparable to the injuries that the men at the same stage had. So that's piece of the evidence number one. And then a completely separate study that just happened to be published in the same week was looking at nomadic herders in um, ancient Mongolia. So we're talking bordering northern China about 1,500 years ago. Um, And they found evidence that both genders were riding horses in combat. So they could look at the changes to the bone caused by frequent horse riding and falling off horses and then the evidence in the upper body of using bows and arrows and injuries to the head from arrows and knives and like You know, there's all this evidence that women were doing the same thing. So one of the study authors is quoted as saying, I've got evidence that badass women go back a long way. (laughs) Yeah, that's the message we want for Mother's Day. Whether you're a mother or not, you can be badass.
0: Yeah, you're talking to to the three guys on the line here, Dr. Jen, who are like, yeah, that wouldn't be us with arrows and shit. We'd be in the cave watching TV.
10: (laughs) no. No, I'm 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 quite hap- I'm quite happy to hand the uh, the the bowing and arrowing and falling off horses to to anyone will take it, male or female.
13: Having All watched right. having watched Black Panther and women with spears, <laughs> I, I definitely I definitely think you should respect women with spears. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Full stop. But definitely, if i have got some. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it, it does. I mean, the interesting thing is, though, Jen, I, I guess this is a point is that, you know, when we're growing up, we see a certain version of the world through <clears throat> television, books, whatever else. Yeah. And if the data doesn't support that version, then the question is, should we not <laughs> sort of update it a little bit? Um, yeah. You know, didn't everyone watch Xena back in the 80s? What the hell's going on? Didn't that take <laughs> off? I know I did. I'm not sure why. Yeah, I uh, watched Xena.
13: Surely.
0: surely everyone watched it. And Buffy? Come
13: on. Yeah. That's right. The evidence is there.
0: The evidence is there.
12: <laughs> well, now <laughs> we've got some really good evidence from the skeletons too rather than just from the popular culture.
0: Uh, good to hear. Chris K.P., what do you got for us? And I should tell people um, Chris is in front of a very, very lovely bookshelf where the books look giant mm. and he looks miniature, which is appropriate.
10: Mm, yes. Well, I have lost some weight and apparently some size um, during lockdown. <laughs> um, I uh, looked at, Speaking of which, if there's one thing that we've learned uh, you know, as, we, as we fight um, this, this current virus – um, it's that we, you know, we're getting better at dealing with bad things. So I thought I'd um, get bad on you, um, and if anyone can um, can sort me out with some um, some heavily armed women, that that might be useful. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about about the what are known as murder hornets yet. Um, this is the latest terrifying species um, to to cross uh, into another ecosystem. So they they found these in North America now, and essentially. Um, the, so the species name is Vesta mandarina, which sounds kind of nice, actually. Um, but they're not pleasant company. Essentially, they, they're big. Uh, we're talking three and a half to four centimeters long. So picture a, a hornet that sort of size. The queens are bigger. These are just the that's the rank and file hornets. Um, they start off by sort of they they find a beehive, they target it so that they, so that their colleagues know where it is, and they sort of pick off bees one by one. And by pick off, I mean they grab one, rip its head off and then carry it back to their own hive to feed the young on. Um, and then once they've worked that out and they're, they're okay with this, they basically just invade the entire hive. And it can take, they can wipe out 50,000 bees in, you know, in a day and a half, just destroy a hive. They then, um, and beheading is their, their method of choice, the dispatching of the bees. Uh, then they'll move into the hive and pulp up all the baby bees and everything else and, take, and, and basically feed off that as well. Um, so European bees are uh, the ones that, that we use for most of our honey production in Australia as well. They are essentially hopeless if the murder hornets get in there; they've got no chance. Um, and they've now found, I think, at least two sites where they where they believe that and believe that they, they believe from genetic information they're different uh, different varieties, different families of uh, of murder hornet have arrived in Washington State. That's the latest I heard, anyway. So it's, that's really bad news. There's not one, and they're now desperately trying to get on top of it before it gets out of control. As it happens, however, in slightly a happy, slightly happier news, um, the Japanese honeybees are all over this. Um, if they find out that there is, if there's an imminent attack um, of uh, of the uh, the murder hornets, what they basically do is they surround the hornet with a whole bunch of bees in what is known as a hot defensive bee ball. Um, <laughs> sounds like something I might have spent much money on um, in my early university days, but inside the hot defensive bee ball, they basically just flap their their wings and they get hot. Um, In fact, they're one of very few species that are able to regulate the heat across a group of them, but they essentially can pump it up to 47 degrees Celsius and cook the wasps uh, the hornets, rather, which is, which is kind of grouse. Um, sadly, they have not passed that information on to the European honeybees yet. So, um, you know, at least in North America, they're trying their very best to get on top of these massive, terrifying creatures before they get out of control.
0: i got to say, that that bee cooking phenomenon is yeah. going to be one of the best biological things I've heard all year. I love it. Yeah, same, fantastic. Yeah. I mean,
10: there's some have actually
0: I've actually... myself. Yeah, you're good, Chris. We can hear you. Yeah, uh, it's great. Anyway, it's great. The um the 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 ability of them to cook their enemy is uh, is sick shit, man. But it's fantastic. Yeah, I really love yeah. it. I love it. That's uh, that's <laughs> biology at its best. If we can get people to to somehow do that around Donald Trump, um, <laughs> I don't know if a whole lot of people with coronavirus, all with a temperature at the same time, could surround him. Um, I, I will miss I just, the the what I what I've now referred to as videos that are being uh of of a human being that's a five-year-old who's walked through a gateway from the second century um you know i love them they're fun but they're scary at the same time but maybe maybe a similar approach could work chris
12: Who's, who's
0: volunteering to try Shane? Uh, look, actually, that's one I'd probably take for the team if it did that for the world. Um, I think a lot of, Thank you.:
12: <laughs> a <lot of> people <laughs>
0: Hey look, it's great to see you guys. I miss you uh, in the studio with me, but it's, it's certainly excellent to, uh, to be online and chat with you, and we'll be back in the studio real soon, hopefully all together hanging out like normal. Thanks for uh, being on again and uh, doing great news and, and keeping everyone entertained. Hope you're all safe at home. Thanks, Thanks,
12: Shane. Mate. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for doing such an awesome job in there on your own. We are missing you.
0: Thanks, Jen. I'm luckily surrounded by other Triple R people, which is nice. So that's uh, that's fine. It's not not as lonely here as you might expect. But uh, not having you guys yeah. in the room with me is a little sad. But uh, I'll say bye bye, and we'll chat to you again soon, folks. See ya.
13: Cheers,
12: mate. Right. See ya. Take care, everyone.
0: See ya. Uh, well, folks, uh, we're almost out of time. I'm going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein the Go Go today. We're very, very uh, happy to be continuing to broadcast science to you. It's absolutely a privilege to be able to do that every week on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to hand over now to Eat It. Cam is over there in Studio One, ready to go. Have a great Sunday and happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. <laughs> triple r hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einsteiner go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via einsteiner go twitter account or facebook page